Yo, partnership alert, partnership alert, partnership alert. Living Corporate has a partnership with LinkedIn Learning, an American massive open online course provider that provides video courses taught by industry experts across a wide array of subjects. Now, the partnership is because Living Corporate has courses on LinkedIn Learning focused on diversity, equity, inclusion for leaders, career professionals, and anyone really looking to upskill themselves and be better allies. So make sure you check out our courses on LinkedIn Learning by clicking the link in the show notes. And let's just say you don't want to do that. You go to LinkedIn Learning on LinkedIn, search Living Corporate. We'll be right there. All right. Peace. Hey, everybody, this is See It to Be It, the Wednesday podcast from Living Corporate. Living Corporate is a digital media network that centers and amplifies black and brown people at work. My name is Amy C. Wanninger, and I'm the host of See It to Be It. When I was growing up in rural southern Indiana, I didn't know people who went to college or who worked in professional roles. I didn't know what those jobs looked like or how to break into them. In a lot of cases, I didn't even know those jobs existed. But this show isn't about me. It's about my guests. Every week, I bring you career stories from everyday role models in jobs you may not know exist. More importantly, the folks I interview share their perspectives as black and brown professionals in jobs and environments where they may be the only. My guest today is Stephanie Roldan. She's a little bit different from my other guests because she's not one of those people with the mysterious college jobs. She's someone with a mysterious trade job. And as we know, the trades have been overlooked for a very long time in our country um, and in our, you know, kind of our uh, popular discourse. So I'm really excited for you to hear from her today. But before we get to the interview, we're going to tap in with Tristan for some career advice. What's going on, y'all? It's Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting, and I've teamed up with Living Corporate to bring you all a weekly career tip. This week, we're going to talk about having a networking follow-up strategy. We've all gone to really cool networking events, connected with a few people, and ended up exchanging business cards. Then we go home and toss them in the ever-growing pile of rectangular paper and move on with our lives. If this is how you approach networking, you probably haven't made too many fruitful connections. If we want to build a solid network to lean on when we need them, then it's going to take a bit more than crossing our fingers and hoping they reach out to us. We have to be proactive and take the first steps to connect outside of the event we met them at. Now, there are many ways to follow up after an event, but I utilize a four-step follow-up strategy that I'd like to introduce you to that has proven to be quite effective for me. First, send them an email within 24 hours of the event. Remind them of who you are, where you met, and something you all spoke about. Tie it all together by asking them to grab a coffee or lunch and even sweeten the deal by making it your treat. Number two, Connect with them on LinkedIn directly after sending your email. This helps them remember who you are by attaching a face to the name. Number three, find a way to be of service to them. This can happen in the email if you've identified some ways while you connected at the event, or it can happen after you've met up. Remember, networking isn't just about what they can do for you, so no matter which route you go, be sure to lead by giving and initially expecting nothing in return. The fourth, and quite possibly the most essential of the steps, is to maintain the relationship by setting reminders on your calendar to catch up. This might sound silly, but otherwise you might not do it, and that network connection becomes what we called 
a cold connection, meaning if you reached out to ask for something, it would seem like it's coming out of left field and that you're simply trying to use that person. Implementing this proven follow-up strategy will surely help foster more valuable connections from your networking experiences. Remember, it's necessary to not only build a network, but keep it warm by continually engaging with the people you've connected with. This tip was brought to you by Tristan of Layfield Resume Consulting. Check us out on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Layfield Resume, or connect with me, Tristan Layfield, on LinkedIn. Living Corporate is brought to you by the Liberated Love Notes Podcast, part of the Living Corporate Network. The Liberated Love Notes Podcast is a starting point for integrating self and community affirmations into your daily practices. The Liberated Love Notes podcast center the experience of black folks existing in white systems and speaks to overcoming imposter syndrome, disrupting injected and internalized forms of oppression, embodying an abundance mindset and building a healthy racial identity. Check out Liberated Love Notes podcast wherever you listen to podcasts hosted by Brittany Janae Harris. Welcome back to See It to Be It. My guest today is Stephanie Roldan. She's the director of Lean Culture at Rosenden Electric. She leads Rosenden's respect for people and continuous improvement culture, simplified as lean culture. This responsibility includes developing, setting, and leading the strategy on creating an inclusive environment and sense of belonging for employees. She serves as the chairperson for Rosenden's Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion Committee and sits on the board of directors for the Arizona foundation for women and i am so excited to have her on the show stephanie welcome oh thank you thanks for having me amy i'm pretty excited i'm so excited to have you and i always like to tell people how we met and usually it's because we met at a conference or i know you from an association or we connected on linkedin but in today's case you're a surprise mystery guest for me because you found me and so <laughs> that's always exciting when it's somebody I don't know and I get to learn like all about you from scratch so welcome yeah thank you yep it's it's really great to be able to start meeting new people my journey has largely been in the construction industry and we're starting down to really focus on what does inclusion mean and what does belonging mean in the construction industry? There's a lot of stats out there where you'll realize that women make 50% of the population. We're only like 10% in construction. And women that are actual tradeswomen, similar to myself that started with tools in their hand, hovers around 3, 3%. So it, it's this, if we're at a workforce shortage, we've got a lot of people that could fill these jobs and there wouldn't be a shortage. It's just how do we welcome them into construction? Yeah. So let's talk about that because when you're a little kid and you're playing with tools, a lot of girls get discouraged from continuing to play with tools, right? Their dads or their brothers, or somebody comes along and takes the hammer out of their hand and redirects them to something else. And it sounds like that wasn't your experience. So can you talk a little bit about, you know, how this captured your attention and how this was nurtured in you? Yeah. So it's, it's actually pretty interesting because when I look back at it, I can see where the nurturing was happening, but I don't think it was intentional. <laughs> so that's the first part, right? It was very much that my father worked for General Electric and he was an x-ray repairman. So he'd be bringing home like circuit boards and all kinds of little random things that had capacitors and resistors in it. And I'd be sitting there just like breaking things apart because they were already broken. So at that point, he would just check it to us and let us have fun with it. And I would be experimenting with some of the things 
I wasn't necessarily building anything, but I was, and my mom's background before she became a full-time housewife was she did machine deburring on aeronautical parts. And so she would, she'd be sitting there and she'd have a Dremel. And I grew up my whole life with my mom with a Dremel in her hand, doing some kind of craft or something with us. And I was lucky enough to be in that little cusp generation, right? Not quite where computers were everything that a computer lab would be everything in an elementary school, but that you'd still have some machine shops and some of those things available in the junior high years. And I can very vividly remember building in seventh grade, a bridge. And the assignment was you had all these little bitty sticks and you had to build a bridge and you could build it however you wanted. It was free form, but at the end, they were going to put it in a machine that would compress it under pressure. And the teams whose bridge withstood the most amount of pressure would be the winner. And so therein lies my competitive nature too. So I I was like, oh, I'm going to win something. I don't know what we won, probably a candy bar or something, but I was like, we have to win this thing. And I was finding all these creative ways. I was like, we need to stack this. We need to make sure that when it compresses, the, the pinch points are strong, all these kinds of things. And lo and behold, it, it sustained itself. And so then when I got into high school, the shops had been replaced by computer labs. We're starting to get into this. You're going to need to know how to type. You're going to need to know how to potentially build a web page, surf the internet, all these things. And so that wasn't really being fed anymore. More of the physical aspects of what I was doing was largely sports. So I was learning still teamwork and collaboration through sports, but it wasn't coming through my coursework. And then uh, families in America, my parents just got to a point where they couldn't get along any longer. And so they divorced and that situation was really tense. And I got to the end of, you know, my senior year of high school, great student, high GPA, no college money or alternatives, but moving backwards and starting my start line further behind. And I had an uncle who was in the trade and said, Hey, I got an idea. I know you can build stuff. I know generally tools. Let's try construction. Like we'll go down to the apprenticeship. You'll get educated. I know that you'll leave there with a skill that's you can use and build a career on. And then truthfully, you could take it anywhere. And then if then after you finish five years of school, you're like, I'm now a little bit more grown. I'm a 20, you're a 22, 23 year old person. I have an idea of what I want to do. Then that's maybe when you invest in college and do that. And I joined the apprenticeship. I graduated at 23 because I did it right out of high school. I had the skills. And then I realized I'm a decent builder, but there's way better builders out than me. And what started along the way, when we had a couple cycles of no work in Arizona and things slowed down is I had a mentor who said, hey, we could use help on the office side. We can teach you some basics around estimating, some basics around project management. Do you want to give it a try? And so I did. And I was like, I think this is actually the better fit for me. I know exactly how we're going to build something. I might not be the most productive or the fastest builder, but I can surely tell you when this is not going to go well, the way we've designed it, the way we have to build it. I can see alternatives. I think I need to make that management switch. And I did. I made the management switch very shortly after finishing my apprenticeship. That's incredible. And so when you showed up for your apprenticeship, were they, did they wonder what to do with you or were they pretty receptive uh, to having this barely adult young woman <laughs> yeah. show up and say, hi, here I am. Yeah. I was pretty fortunate in, in the fact that, and, and maybe it comes from my sports background, right? Of, of quickly figuring out, who, do, who, do, who needs to be on Team Stephanie? Who's going to really show me some things? Who's going to invest 
and then pairing up with those people. And, and there are stories like I can now, like my, my current supervisor shares a story about how, when he first saw me at 18, he, he asked the other journeyman wireman and said, are we sure she's graduated high school and she's 18? Because I looked that like fresh faced young. I didn't know anything outside of some like basic tools. And they were like, no. And on top of that, she's a really hard worker. And I think that moment is what helped him mentor and coach me throughout my career. And he's still my coach and mentor to this day. And I, I think being able to see a lot of the times the struggle is I'm the only in, in many cases, but in that case, because I was the only, I stood out and a question was asked. And that question has benefited me my entire career. That is wonderful. And it's, you know, I think you touch on this notion of mentorship and guidance and having somebody, not just to mentor you, but also to be your sponsor, right? Somebody who taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, I see more in you than what you are doing right now. Come with me and let me show you this other thing. Yeah. I I mean, that, that was the first question asked very early on when I was in the field. And by the time months later, or when that other opportunity came out, he said, hey, you said she's a hard worker. We don't want to lay her off. She's one of the highest scoring apprentices we have and got some of the highest grades. We've got to keep her working and then presenting another opportunity. And then just, we're now in 2021 and we first met each other in 1999. That's awesome. So then you went into the office role, the kind of a manager, project manager kind of role, Mm -hmm. and you did that for a while. And then since then you've moved into some other places. So can you talk a little bit about where your career went? from that point forward. Yeah, absolutely. So I made that jump over to project management. I spent a lot of my time, even in the field and in the office side, really in the semiconductor world, companies that want to build chip factories. And I then got the glimpse behind the curtain around manufacturing processes and how can we use maybe some of that manufacturing thinking around standardization and operational excellence to really help us as a company. And that's where I took my role on for being our corporate lean manager was then just helping teams find ways that we could build things safer, that they, the, we could remove obstacles so people could be as productive as they wanted to be when they showed up at the gate at 6 a.m. instead of just dealing with a whole bunch of things they didn't expect, but really getting them, you know, to focus on their trade craft and what they showed up to do that day. And then from there, we started, you know, focusing on the people part of that, which is when you really think about lean culture, it's really only two components. It's respect for people and continuous improvement. And so project-based, we really get that because that's business results. And then you have to introduce this respect for people part. And that's the part where everyone thinks it's squishy, but it's not squishy. It's very much the enabler for everything else, right? If I feel respected and I feel like the work that you're giving me gives me pride and gives me a sense of purpose, I'm going to give you discretionary effort. And discretionary effort is what companies need to make that next leap to be able to find better means and methods, ultimately those things start impacting the bottom line. And that's why when you think about it, it's really not squishy. We talk about soft skills and emotional intelligence. Those are all people skills. And that's actually going to be the differentiator as more and more technology joins the workforce to enable us to do things. Absolutely. And I want to flip that on its head a little bit too, because not only do you get more discretionary effort from people when they feel safe, but you don't get suggestions when people don't feel safe. If somebody doesn't feel safe speaking up about something as critical or as simple as I was harassed at the work site, or I don't feel 
supported by my team or I don't feel supported by my manager. If they're feeling those things and they notice a safety issue where somebody could really be hurt, they're less likely to speak up because they've been shot down before or they don't feel like anybody will have their back. And then you get into these notions of process improvement where what if instead of coming in at six o'clock, we had one person come in at five and prep the site for us. You know, that's sticking your neck out yes. to make a suggestion like that. And people don't stick their necks out if they feel like their necks are on the line. Mm -hmm. oh, oh yeah. If a person can't feel safe, you won't get inclusion and they won't feel like anything that they're going to contribute is of value to you. And then once that happens, there's no way that they can feel like they belong in your environment. And so that's why when construction started really focusing on this, you could see that there's something either in our industry or in our trades that doesn't give people a sense that they could be included in this work. And to your point, that adjustment might be, everyone starts at 6 a.m., but we have a woman on a crew has a couple kids that if we could figure out how she can just make the bus stop drop, she could start at seven and oh, by the way, the rest of the crew was prepping everything else. So a seven o'clock start, does it really hurt? And oh, by the way, she might be able to close out the paperwork at the end of the afternoon and everyone else is left and we're done. But we've got to get creative on really looking at what can we do and what can we challenge in the way that we've always worked that can allow people to engage with us. I think this, this conversation is so important to have around the trades because for decades, all we heard in the overarching social message was go to college, get a good job. And now the trades are suffering because so many people bought into that mindset of, I just go to college, I'll get a good job. They're graduating with hundreds of thousands of dollars in some cases debt. They're not getting jobs that they couldn't have gotten otherwise because now the whole knowledge economy has changed. But there's something to be said for just like you did, start work early get some skills that are highly marketable that can make you very attractive in the job market that you can, those skills transfer to a lot of different places, makes you very mobile. You graduate from your apprenticeship with probably no debt, probably Zero. some money in your pocket. And I think that it's really past time we started having this conversation again, because not everybody wants to go to college. Not everybody wants to take on hundreds of thousands of dollars or tens of thousands of dollars in debt. And let's face it, some people really thrive working with their hands, seeing a finished product at the end of the day. And I'm just curious, what are the, what are some of the things that you talk to people about when you're trying to attract people into the trades? Because you're kind of facing a mountain of like generational mountain of opposition to this, right? Yes. I, the first part I say, Amy, is it's not no college. It's just not college today. And even that's not even a true statement because the truth is your apprenticeship, you're going to class earning college credits. So, you know, mom, dad, when you're scared and you're thinking, oh my God, my, my kid's gonna graduate high school and there's no way they're ever gonna succeed if they go to trade school. It's not true. It's just, it's not true. First off, I, I earned my associates shortly after I finished trade school. I had done my, all my apprenticeship, all those classes counted. I needed some English. I'd earned math while I was in high school and some other things, but 
hey, that's a degree and it's a certificate. And then all I need to do is continue to see what other holes are there in this organization that I can fill. Do I need more education for that? Do I just need to get skills from someone else on the job training? All of those things. And so I, I think that's the first part that parents don't be afraid that when we say we'd like your kid to join the apprenticeship, that we're automatically shutting the door on college because we're not. There's going to be a lot of people that find their way back to college. The second part is around this wage part and around when you start apprenticeship, you're already making 50% of what a journeyman wireman would make. So we're already talking about above minimum wage. So if you're afraid that your child's going to be stuck with a minimum wage job, it's not even a possibility because you're already starting at minimum wage or, or above minimum wage, frankly. Then you're progressively earning as you attain skills all the way till you, you know, certify as a journeyman wireman. The head starts already happening. Plus, we happen to be a union contractor. So we're already starting to seed your retirement accounts, known as pensions and annuities. We're providing you medical insurance and, and benefits that way. You're getting educated. And if you make a jump to one of your the contractor's side, then you're going to get what those benefits are. But it, it's really a great opportunity but to your point, for what will be 13 years of a person's life, from the moment we walk into a kindergarten classroom and we're said, oh, today's alma mater day, what college sweatshirt or t-shirt are you going to wear? We're already made to believe that's the only path to success here. And, and I'll, I'll be honest, I was a parent who fell in that same trap up until probably three years ago, Amy, I'll be honest. I didn't speak to my own children about trades as a career. And yet my brother and I are both vocationally trained. I'm an electrician by trade and my brother is a hairstylist, a cosmetologist, earns a, a great salary. He's got a fulfilling career. And I was just blind to it myself. Wow. What do you think, where do you think that came from that disconnect? I don't know. And because the other thing is my husband also works for this company. So it's like, it's all around us. And it didn't really hit me until my daughter said to me one day, it sounds like Rosenden's a really great company to work for. And I was like, and, and she said she's, today, and it was because we had a, a bring your kids to work day. She said, today, I saw you guys 3D modeling. I saw your, your 3D lab and they let us use the iPads and the VR headsets. And I had some basic wiring on a flashlight. And then they showed me how to etch and engrave some labels today, mom. And like all these things. And she's like, I think this is a really great place to work. And I was like, why have I not, why have I not talked to my child about the opportunities that present themselves in the career that I have selected? And, and now we, we have all of these conversations, but I just was like, what is going on? And somewhere along the lines, I'm sure it's, my own subconscious, Amy, saying, hey, I had 13 years where I was told I was supposed to go to college. Yeah. Wow. Thank you for opening up about that, because that's going to be really hard to be to be that forthcoming about. I work in the trades, I promote the trades, and I forgot to tell my own kids about the <laughs> trades. Yeah. That's, that's a pretty vulnerable <laughs> thing. So thank you for that. Absolutely. <laughs> but, and I, I can relate to that in some ways, because I, I was told my whole life that I had to go to college. I thought everybody went to college. And then when I had my own kids, education for me was my path to something better than where I grew up and the way I grew up. And it just didn't occur to me that there wasn't another path, right? There, there might be another path. And I had, oh my gosh, so many conversations with my oldest, who's now 19, who has no plans to go to college ever. And it took me a long time to be okay with that. 
And, uh, but for all kinds of reasons, and I even at one point tried to steer him toward the trades and we'll get, we'll figure out where he's going to be someday, but it's just, it's an interesting process to watch your kids not do what you think is the obvious thing for them. And to be so resolute about that thing that they're not going to do or the thing that they are going to do. And then to try to come full circle and say, oh, you know what? I missed something. And I'm sorry that I didn't open up that possibility for you. That's right. I opened my kids' college funds they were six months old like in my mind already it was cemented your six month old baby i just had you but i'm gonna start a college fund for you like that's where i was but again not saying college never but maybe it's not today maybe it's college second yes yeah trade first college because then too that way you're working your way through college and you're paying for it on the front end instead of owing for it on the back end Mm -hmm. which is so much worse Yeah. Here's the thing is a a lot of people say college is so you can figure out what you want to do when you grow up. But the last time I checked, you can figure out what you want to maybe do for free. You don't need to be $40,000 into debt at 19. You have a 19 year old son. And then thinking, I still haven't really figured out what I want to do, but now my starting line is backwards. Like, how about just take a pause for a second and just let life happen for a little bit. And then you, you might figure it out. Yeah. And not only that, but, and I don't know if we can get a record scratch sound effect in here, but I know a whole lot of people in their forties and fifties who still haven't figured out what they want to do. Yeah. Some of them have master's degrees and PhDs and they still don't know. Yeah. And here's the thing is even what I find passion in doing now in my work and purpose in that I find, I don't know that would have been a passion or a purpose for me at 19, 20, 21 years old. I didn't know enough about the world for that to even present itself. Trades provides a great income, a way to have something that's transferable. If I have an electrical problem in my house, I can sort it out myself. I can do it all the time. I have other friends that if the plumbing goes awry, I'll make that phone call. It's a great network. It's always usable. And then as you're moving along, you'll discover other things that bring you purpose and passion. And then you can make those changes here and there, right? The learning journey and the life journey is very long and you can move about all that you want. Absolutely. And the other thing too, is from a macro perspective, the trades are necessary to keep our economy going. If we can't build stuff and we can't wire stuff and we can't put the plumbing in and we can't deal with all, this is the the day-to-day, like keep us moving forward, keep our houses going, keep our businesses going, keep our communities going. This is the work. And if nobody does it, then we can't move forward. You're seeing it present itself post-COVID. There's not enough semiconductor chips right now to create the things that we need. Everything from... There's cars sitting in lots, right? Millions of cars in lots that nobody can buy. So those careers, a, a car salesman or woman right now, they don't have anything to sell. And it's going to get really bad for them until something can move again. Intel here locally just announced they're putting $20 billion more into the economy and building two, two big fabs from here. So that's a lot of jobs. It's a lot of jobs. It's thousands of people needed to build those items. You talk about any of the other infrastructure things that we want to be able to do and accomplish here in the States. It takes builders to do that stuff. And that's all so that we can maintain a lifestyle, I think that we generally all, we all like that power comes to the house when we need it and that we can flush our toilets and the stuff leaves. And this stuff is big time. And 
when even when the COVID impacts happened and it was around essential workers. This is why trades were essential, because I don't think people realize how much impact keeping the, the powerhouses going and making sure they stay on maintenance schedules and making sure that the maintenance is happening on your roads and on, all of this stuff matters. And we're not doing enough to introduce it to people to, and frankly, to younger and younger individuals so that they know there is a different option. Yeah, I was going to say, I think in Texas, they found out pretty quickly that they needed those power stations up and running uh, last winter. And all of that comes down to, do you have the right people with the right expertise who feel safe enough to speak up and who can make the things happen that need to happen? That's right. Stephanie, I want to thank you so much for sharing this with us, for bringing this perspective to the show. Usually I talk to people who are in offices, who are those master's degrees and who are not, who haven't gone through trades. And I think that you bring an important perspective to the show that I've been missing, which is, look, there's this whole other part of the economy that we cannot afford to overlook. Thank you. Absolutely. And thank you for inviting me. You know, what I really loved about this interview is how Stephanie admitted, right, that she was, um, you know, in the trades, she, everybody that she knows, her family, all in the trades, and yet she failed to make this a career option for her own kids uh, very early in their lives. And so, you know, it's easy for us to forget, right, that there are multiple valid paths and multiple ways of achieving what we want to achieve in life and multiple ways to contribute. And I really enjoyed talking to her about this. We had a great conversation afterwards about summer camps for kids and how, you know, the trades can can really reach out to young kids with some hands-on fun stuff that they can do. So I'm really looking forward to talking to her some more. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Living Corporate and share us with your friends and colleagues. And you can really help us out by leaving a six-star review wherever you get your podcasts. You may be looking at your app thinking, Amy, there are only five stars there. Okay, give us all those stars, but then go the next step by leaving a couple of sentences in your own words telling us what you liked about the episode or the series. Don't forget to visit living-corporate.com to learn more about our other podcasts, videos, web shows, and more. See It to Be It is brought to you in part by Lead at Any Level, a certified woman and LGBTQ-owned business dedicated to helping organizations win the competition for talent by transforming their reclusive nerds into inclusive leaders. Lead at Any Level, leaders can be anywhere and should be everywhere. Learn more at leadatanylevel.com. That's it for this episode of See It to Be It. This is Amy C. Wanninger, and I'll see you next week. Franklin for Musical Elevation. Post-production is handled by Jeremy Jackson. Got a topic suggestion? Email us at livingcorporatepodcast at gmail.com. You can find us online on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and living-corporate.com. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned.